Hi, thank you for joining us on If She Can Do It, So Can You. My name is Amanda Creasy and I am your host. On If She Can Do It, So Can You, we aim to air a new episode on the first of every month so that we can share with you women's wisdom, wit, and grit in an empowering and inspirational podcast. I'm glad that you're here to listen as I talk to women about their trials and their triumphs while they share their stories of challenges they've overcome, barriers they've broken, stereotypes they have silenced, and dreams that they have achieved. My goal is that through each episode, you will be able to find your own strength, healing, and motivation through their success stories. Because if she can do it, so can you. Thank you so much for joining us today on If She Can Do It, So Can You. Today, my guest is Leslie St. James. Leslie St. James is the author of the Jill Cooksey Mysteries, a cozy mystery series about a public relations professional whose clients never fail to misbehave, but whose friends always have her back. In 2020, Leslie's first novel, The Sweet Scent of Death, won Richmond Magazine and James River Writers' Best Unpublished Novel Contest. Leslie then started her own indie publishing business, Madcap Mystery, and released the novel to the world, along with the sequel, Death of a Dolly Waggler. The third Jill Cooksey mystery, Cruising Toward Death, is expected in August of 2022. Leslie began her career in film and television before moving up to public relations and then to education. A devoted, lifelong reader of mysteries, she always knew the kind of books she would write. She graduated from Mary Washington College with a degree in English and French literature and went on to study film at Georgia State University. When she's not writing or teaching writing, Leslie enjoys traveling, movies, and genealogy. She resides in Mechanicsville with her husband, Matthew. Thank you so much for taking time out of your afternoon to talk with us today, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure. So I wanted to talk first about your love of reading and writing mysteries. So what is it that appeals to you about reading and writing mysteries? Because for me, I really enjoy reading them. I am not smart enough or creative enough to write them. (laughs) So how do you do it? You know, I I feel like um, because I've read so many of them, like I started at a really, really, really young age. I probably started reading mysteries when I was six years old. Um, That because I've spent so much time in the genre, I think it just sort of absorbed the tropes and absorbed structure and absorb you know and I, I feel like if you spend that much time with anything you know it's that whole 10,000 hour rule from Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> you know I feel like I've spent 10,000 hours with mystery so maybe that's why I love writing them so much I, I love puzzles I've always loved puzzles I've always loved trying to figure things out maybe it's a little bit of me try- like trying to feel like I'm smarter than the book you know that's why I like to read mysteries because if I can figure it out then it makes me feel good um (laughs) but uh I you know now I like I like I just enjoy creating the puzzle for people to try to figure out you know it's really fun and it's fun to pepper you know the book with clues and see who will catch them and who won't I just got a book back from my beta readers and it was interesting to see which readers caught certain things and which readers didn't and uh, it's good to have a variety of reactions, I think, to the book and a, a variety of uh, experiences. So that that makes me feel really good. But yeah, I just I don't know. It's just uh, it's just the thing I think I've read the most of <laughs> in my life. <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about the 10,000 hour rule, because I um, I haven't talked about that in a long time with anyone, probably several years. But that came up with a family member and my husband just the other day, they were talking about the 10,000 hour rule because my husband switched careers, not quite 10,000 hours ago. And uh, my uncle was consoling him saying, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, you're not there yet. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So give us a rundown of Jill Cooksey. Who is she and what inspired you to create her? So Jill Cooksey is, um, you know, she is a 20, she's, she's like so many, young women who go to New York to seek out their careers. She is, you know, hopefully a bit of an every woman in the city, in that sense, in that context, you know, there are so many young people who move to New York after college and, you know, try to break into whatever business they're trying to break into and, you know, have that city experience and some of them stay, some of them go, you know, and they have a lot of, you know, a lot of experiences, you know, when you move to a big city, especially, you know, out of college, you it's just a different kind of world. And so 
you know, she's really supposed to be kind of that every woman, but she specifically, you know, is in public relations. And when I first started writing her, I had just come out of public relations and um, really was wanting to focus on writing and was making the switch to teaching. And it, I had so much fodder. I had so many stories <laughs> uh, from my time in PR, but also in television and film and stuff like that, um, that I just, I mean, I just had so much to work with. And she, so she came about really sort of naturally because that's really what I had known. And, you know, having spent most of my late twenties pursuing public relations or film and TV in New York, I mean, I just had tons of stories to write about. So um, she was just sort of a natural extension of my own experience. I tend to write primarily about things that I know. I like to have, you know, I, I like for my writing to, you know, be based on my experiences. Um, a, I think it's easier to write <laughs> based on, you know, things that you know. Right, yeah. Um, and hopefully it's more authentic, I, I hope. But I know there are writers who write about things that are completely alien to them and do a really wonderful job. I'm not sure I'm that good yet. So. <laughs> You're well, 10,000 hour rule, right? You right, exactly. haven't probably been writing them for 10,000 hours yet. So, probably not yet. <laughs> so, your first novel won a very exciting award. Like, if I would have lost my mind in your shoes if I had won that award. So, tell us a little bit about what that felt like when you were notified that your very first ever novel was winning this Richmond Magazine James River Writers contest. Honestly, it felt like redemption <laughs> it felt like uh just it was the thing I needed so very badly you know I wrote I started writing that book in um September of 2000 mm -hmm. <laughs> and it went through five million drafts and um it went through two decades which means it had to be updated a gajillion times to you know to match technology and the world and everything and uh I had sent it to so many publishers and been rejected so many times, revised it so many times. And the that contest actually gave me the fuel I needed to keep going. Like it was so, it was, I can't, I cannot stress how important it was to me as far as keeping me moving forward. It, it was, was validation. It was, it absolutely was. And I needed it so badly. <laughs> And it came at just the right moment. So it was wonderful. I'm so grateful for it. I mean, it really, um, it, um, it, it changed, it changed a lot of things for me. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one thing you have to be good at if you're a writer, if nothing else is handling rejection. Um, yeah. There's as much writing in writing as there is rejection in writing. <laughs> Maybe more rejection than writing actually happens when you're a writer, I think. And a lot of writing as a result of rejection, <laughs> like that, you know. Yeah. It's a cycle. Yep, <laughs> very true. Around. Yeah. Very true. Well, congratulations on that award. I was so oh, happy for you back when that happened. And so much. Did you celebrate? Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yes. Went out for a like an expensive dinner. And I, um, you know, I guess I just remember there was a lot of shrieking and squealing with my family. Of course. And, <laughs> yeah, of course. It was great. Uh, can you share an excerpt of this award-winning first novel? This is Sweet Scent of Death. I can. This is... I've never read this excerpt before. so oh, when... At least not aloud. You've read it many yeah. times, I'm sure. but <laughs> So many times, but never aloud. <laughs> so I'll just give you um, some backstory on it. So this is um, comes kind of later in the book. Um, and I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but it comes later in the book. And so in this book, um, Jill is trying to launch a new, uh, fragrance for her cosmetics client. She's a beauty PR. And so everything is going wrong. Her spokesmodel is accused of murder. Oh. And so, um, you know, just all sorts of things are, happening. she's trying to hold this campaign together. She's getting all sorts of bad publicity. Her clients are unhappy there's a murderer on the loose. She's in danger. All sorts of stuff is happening. So she's trying to hold it together. And she's, her client is about to go on, is, go, is about to tape a late night TV show, you know, kind of like, like a Jay Leno or something like that, you know, late night TV show. I guess Jay Leno, that, I'm dating myself there. 
but okay. yeah. <laughs> I knew what you meant. So obviously I'm dating myself too. <laughs> Here they are. They're about to go. And so at this point, murder mysteries are often kind of arc stories. You know, you've got like either it's a village or it's a, or in this case, it's a PR campaign and everybody's sort of trapped in this, in this arc, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so she, all of these people have assembled. Now it's got like all of all of the the people from corporate and all of the suspects and Joel's parents and all sorts yeah. of stuff. Like people are all here, like too many people. <laughs> and, so, um, and they're all going to this taping at um, this late night TV show. So here we go. All right. <clears throat> Ten minutes later, we came to a halt in front of the stage door to the Tennessee Williams Theater. This time it took only a couple of trips to get us inside as several interns with umbrellas came to our rescue. The intern in charge of welcoming talent and escorting them to the green room was certainly surprised by our number, but she was too polite to say anything. Her facial expression said quite enough, and I hoped Simone would be too busy to visit the green room that day. A few minutes later, we were sitting on sofas with soft drinks in our hands. Juliet had been whisked off her hair and makeup, and Haas had dutifully followed. Branch was regaling my mother and the Scots with stories about his own appearances on talk shows, and Meredith, Dustin, and Hilda had resumed their prior activity, pretending to work while watching everyone around them. It was getting old. I just wanted them to go away while I finished the fall fantasy campaign activities with Juliet. The Texans were starting to unnerve me. An aging rocker burst through the door, pushing a baby stroller containing two-year-old twins. A sling across his chest sported a newborn with soft blonde hair, an odd accessory for a man clad in multicolored spandex with feathers in his hair and glitter around his eyes. Arden Seals was a lovely young woman who looked like she'd stepped out of a Talbot's catalog. At second glance, she had. I recognized her as the prominent model that had married the rocker who was more than twice her age. I was starting to sense a trend. Branch knew him, correction, knew her, and introduced himself, my mother, the Scots, and me. The world was getting more and more surreal. While my mother was hobnobbing with rock and roll royalty, I took the opportunity to look for Simone. I wanted to give her the deluxe gift bag and thank her personally, and I hoped to forestall a trip to the green room. My appearance in the hallway was met with astonishment by the interns, who didn't quite know what to do with me. There was a lot of shoulder shrugging and muttering. I found it a little odd, but sallied forth. I asked one intern named Stephanie to direct me to Simone's office. Now might not be a good time, she said, as she tried to push me back into the green room. I just want to thank her personally and give her this little gift, I insisted. It will only take a second. Stephanie looked intently at her watch. Okay, she said finally, but we're going to have to move fast. Before I could reply, she was off like a shot and I was racing to catch up. We sprinted down the corridor to a stairwell, raced up two flights of stairs, and emerged into another corridor. We passed a huge oak double door decorated with gold stars and continued past several other plain doors that I thought must lead to offices. Halfway down the corridor, one of these doors opened and an intern emerged carrying a highly polished silver serving tray covered in a lace doily and supporting four Twinkies arranged with military precision. Coming through, shouted the intern. Make way. Are those the... I started to ask Stephanie. Yes, they are, she snapped and quickened her pace. I'd heard about the legendary Jackie Jordan Twinkies from Kate. According to entertainment industry lore, Jackie Jordan had once suffered from a bout of laryngitis that had been inexplicably cured minutes before showtime when he ate a Twinkie. Since then, Jackie had eaten a Twinkie before every show. Over the years, the Twinkie ritual had grown and evolved. Now Jackie required four Twinkies without blemish before every show. The color of the Twinkies could be no darker than a golden brown French fry and no lighter than unsalted Irish butter. The cream filling had to be at least two centimeters from the outside of the Twinkie on all sides and surfaces, and this last stipulation required a dedicated intern to use a magnifying glass and a surgical probe no thicker than a human hair to examine the Twinkie without causing damage. I hadn't quite believed Kate, but now I'd seen the evidence with my, oh, with my own eyes. I was still pondering the curative powers of Twinkies when we suddenly stopped and Stephanie rapped on a door. Enter! Stephanie opened the door and led me into Simone Resnick's inner sanctum. I was a little disappointed. The inner sanctum of the most powerful talent booker in the world was a rather dreary office. Sure, the walls were covered in celebrity photos, but the piles of papers on every surface spoke volumes about how hard Simone Resnick worked. My respect for her, already immense, was now boundless. Geez, Stephanie, do you want to keep your job? Barked Simone as she jumped up from her desk to intercept us. Her wiry hair quivered with anger and frustration. I wondered what the problem was. We have just enough time, Ms. Resnick, Stephanie tried to explain, but Simone cut her off with a wave of her hand. Simone, I'm Jill Cooksey, I smiled at her. I just wanted to thank you for working with me during this delicate time. I didn't get a chance to finish my carefully rehearsed speech. You're welcome. Now get out, said Simone, 
When I just stood there with my mouth gaping open, she took the gift bag from my grasp, pushed the intern toward me, and used the door to shove us both back into the hallway. Stephanie grabbed my hand and started pulling me back the way we came. What on earth was going on? We hadn't traveled ten feet before the oak double doors we had passed at the other end of the hallway opened. Stephanie froze, and all the color drained from her face. She muttered what sounded like a prayer under her breath. Then she flattened her body against the wall and looked at her shoes. When I just stood there looking at her like she was a nut, she briefly looked up at me. Fear filled her imploring eyes. For heaven's sake, do what I do. The terror in her voice was unmistakable and prompted me to flatten my body against the wall next to her. Avert your gaze, she whispered, this time without looking up. I looked at my shoes, still wondering what was up. Avert my gaze? Was this Saudi Arabia? No, it was New York City. A moment later, heavy footsteps resounded through the corridor. They grew louder as the mystery walker approached us. Only after he had passed did I look up to see the back of late-night legend Jackie Jordan. As soon as I looked up, however, Jackie paused as if he could feel my gaze on his back. I averted my eyes and he continued to the stairwell at the end of the hall. When he was gone, I let out the breath I'd been holding. Stephanie, however, practically fainted. We made it back to the green room with me supporting the failing intern with an arm around her waist. On the way back, she explained that no one was allowed to see Mr. Jordan before a show. He considered it the ultimate in bad luck. The last person who had made eye contact with Mr. Jordan before a show, she told me, had been whisked from the theater to a waiting car and hadn't been heard from since. It sounded like a rumor to me, but then I thought about the Twinkies. And now you said you've never read that one out loud before. So mm -hmm. how did you pick that excerpt? Um, you know, you always want to pick an excerpt that isn't going to give too much away about the plot. True. <laughs> but, um, it's also this whole section of the book that takes place at the late night show is one of my favorite parts of the book. A lot of this is, is, is inspired by real life. Mm -hmm. Any names, but I happen <laughs> to know, I happen to have a little insider knowledge about some late night hosts and their proclivities. And so uh, I always tell people that the weirder the thing in the book, the the greater the chance it actually happened in some form or another. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, so you picked that because it was so close to uh, to real life. <laughs> yes, actually, it is. <laughs> so you published this under your own publishing sort of uh, company, Madcap yeah. Mystery. So talk a little bit about starting this publishing company. I imagine a lot goes into that. Yes, a lot goes into it, a lot more than I thought when I first started it. Um, a lot does go into it. It's, um, it's you know, it's really interesting. You know, the publishing landscape has changed so much in the last 20 mm -hmm. years. It's changed a lot in the last 10 years. It's changed a lot in the last five years. It's changed a lot in the last three years. You know, it's constantly, it's constantly evolving. And so when I won the contest, um, the James River Writers Contest, I that gave me the um, confidence to really think about doing this on my own. And at the same time, I also sent it out yet again. And this time I got offered a publishing deal, um, which gave me even more confidence. So the book hey. winning the contest, pub, you know, coupled with the publishing deal made me think, okay, really, this book has legs and I can do something with it. And then I ultimately decided to just do it on my own because you know, the publishing deals, you know, not all deals are created equal. And um, I didn't feel like the deal was really going to, um, it wasn't everything I'd hoped it would be as far, you know, in the world of traditional publishing. And so I thought, well, I could maybe do just as good a job myself doing it um, as this deal would do. So that's when I really decided to do it. There's a lot that goes into it. The, you know, there's, of course, the writing of the book and there's the editing of the book and, mm -hmm. and there's the formatting and then there's the distribution to different vendors and things like that. And then there's the promotion. And um, I've never, I mean, I used to work in public relations. I worked in film and television. I have, but for the last, you know, 20, 22 years, I've been a teacher. So I haven't had to deal a lot with budgets and, you know, business mm -hmm. these, you know, in the last two decades. Uh, so I really had to, you know, draw on very, very, very old skill set. But it's becoming, you know, it has become increasingly popular, probably especially since 2010. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started trying to get my book published, like I never would have ever considered 
doing it on my on my own. I never would have. I mean, still there was the. I mean, I, I you know I grew up with the whole you know, self-publishing stigma, you know, just the, you know, tried pub or you're nothing, that sort of thing. Right. And it's really changed so much. But what's interesting is that it's, while it's incredibly doable, there are trends, there are um, shifts in the market, there are shifts in opinions and, hmm. you know, the opinions of of readers about things, there are things, you know, there are like demographic shifts, all sort of things that you have to take into consideration when you do it on your own. The same thing that I'm sure traditional publishers are taking into consideration, um, but the landscape is always shifting. And so you have to constantly, you know, move with the, with the shifting terrain. And that wasn't something that I necessarily expected. You know, when I first was researching and learning how to do this on my own, a lot of people and people still do this, but I think it's important to know that 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 what I'm about to talk about doesn't really doesn't really work anymore. And that is they everyone anybody who says they have a formula for making this happen mm-hmm. does not have a formula for making this happen. <laughs> or if they do, it was old yesterday. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, when I first started, everyone was talking about, you know, you you set a book perma free, you set a book for free, you give it away that, you know, brings people in and they you read through the rest of your series, yada, yada, yada. Oh, and it's very simple. And that's, that's the easy way, you know, it just happens, you know, magic. It doesn't do that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> that worked for a while. And then, you know, the market became glutted with these free books and they weren't all the same level of quality. And mm-hmm. so readers started to equate free book with bad book right so that strategy doesn't work anymore so you know people have been trying to you know writers and you know indie publishers have been trying to find other strategies to take the place of that strategy Mm. so you're constantly testing and to see what's going to work because that old strategy doesn't really work and there isn't there doesn't seem to be you know a formula you know every book that's launched is launched within a different context you know there's you know, market, time of year, geographic location, genre, you name it. I mean, there are just countless variables there. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you know, no book launch is is the same and the plan isn't going to work the same for every single book. So that is really interesting. It can be really frustrating, <laughs> but I think it's really important to know that it's you know, anybody who's thinking about doing this sort of thing, they have to realize that it is a slow build like any other business. It is not, it's not an overnight sort of thing. And there's no quick, quick and easy route. And, but a lot of people make you think that, you know, if you YouTube videos and, you know, like a lot of people out there who are selling their courses and stuff like that will make you think that they have, you know, a really, you know, the answer for how to how to have success mm-hmm. and you should learn from everybody that you can but there isn't one one route to success yeah and that's so frustrating to someone who's trying to maybe get their first book out or something because you know you and I have talked at length about self publishing and things like that and everybody that I've talked to about self publishing or traditional publishing or hybrid publishing i have not met two people whose publishing journey took the same path everybody's is different. There is no, you know, it's not like, oh, write a cover letter, turn in your resume, have a job interview, and then go to the second interview and get it or don't. It's, there is, there's just no standard route for getting there. That's exactly right. Sometimes you do feel like you're kind of, you know, fishing in the dark a little bit, you know, know exactly. But that's the case with, you know, any business that's trying to sell something and, you know, they, you know, they have this is right. Businesses do market research and because they're trying to find that the right combination of, of factors that will reach the right, the right audience and mm-hmm. appeal to the right audience. So there's a lot about this that is about selling yeah. so sales in this. Yeah. Especially for indie publishers and also publisher uh, people who publish with a small press. Yeah. Um, they can also expect to do a lot of their own promoting and marketing as well. Um, now, do you, with Madcap Mysteries, do you plan to eventually also publish other authors or is Mad? Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. 
that is that's been the plan from the very beginning mm-hmm. um, but of course in the very beginning I thought I was going to start publishing other people's work very 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 quickly mm-hmm. and that's I've been putting it off and putting it off I didn't realize just how slow the build can be I thought well you know this year I'll publish these three books and next year I'll start taking some- <laughs> um, not so much yeah. <laughs> it's still in the plan though it's definitely what I want to do because I add, I do have um an author services sort of wing of Madcap Mystery. So I do okay. editing and I've, you know, edited, I edit mysteries, I've edited memoir, I've edited screenplays actually. Oh, okay. And I really enjoy that work. So I am, I'm, well, I'm not publishing anybody else's work right now. I am being part of the publishing process for other people. And eventually I am going to publish other mystery novels as well. So That's we'll get exciting. Very yeah. exciting you know, your background in TV and also you're talking about screenplays just made me think. So I'm in a course right now through um, an organization called the Not MFA. And (laughs) I know, clever, right? And we are reading a book right now by John York. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, I didn't know who he was before this class either. And the book is called Into the Woods, a a five-act journey into story. And it focuses on movie and TV series and soap operas and, uh, and the structure of, of how they are written and how they are played out. And of course, it's applicable in many ways to novels as well. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, that might be just, you know, maybe something you'd be interested in with your writing and your TV background and interest. Absolutely. I would definitely love to. Into the Woods is what it's called. Yeah, Into the Woods by John York. And it has, it's Y-O-R-K-E. Okay. Oh. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. I found, you know, my, when I went to film school, my major was actually screenwriting. So oh. that really helped me, I think, a lot in, yeah. in, in, in writing books and pacing, I think, I think it's kind of helped me with pacing. Yeah, I'm sure. And I think it, uh, you know, it helped me with my, I think my, also my ability to edit other people's work as well. But um, there's a lot to learn from film structure because the, um you know, it's not the, exactly the same. Clearly, obviously, they're yeah. very different. You get so much more of a of a resolution in a novel than you do in a film. You know, right? Yeah, you maybe get a moment and then it's roll credits in a film. And people who read books want more payoff at the yeah. very. <laughs> so you always have to keep that in mind. But film does it well. Good films do a really great job of pacing things. Yeah. Also being very character driven. And so I think those are two really important lessons you can learn from screenwriting. Your bio mentioned that you are in education and you said that you've been teaching for 22 years now. So does teaching inform your writing at all? Well, the setting of teaching has yet to inform my writing, but it will at some point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But of course, I mean, you learn so much about people as a teacher. You learn so much from your students about human nature and about emotions and frustrations and, you know, what makes people tick. I mean, my students have taught me so much and, and there's such a wide variety of people who come through your classroom over 22 years that you learn about a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And that I think is invaluable. And I'm granted, I'm learning about them in the adolescent stage. But as I get older, the more, you know, I realize more and more that people don't necessarily completely grow up. There's this idea of grow up, but I don't know, I still feel feel about 16 years old myself. So, you know, I'm still waiting to grow up. So Mm -hmm. obviously, hopefully our wisdom and, you know, with life experience and all that, like our ability to make good decisions and hopefully, you know, hopefully increases as we get older. But I think hopes and dreams and things like that are universal no matter what your age is you know and and response to trauma and things like that is pretty universal so uh you know I feel like I've learned a lot about people as a teacher yeah do you think that you teach literature you teach AP Mm -hmm. classes right I teach AP language and then I teach right now I'm teaching AP language and then I treat I teach 12th grade English so like it's a very grit lit oriented class but not completely do you think any of the literature that you teaches influences the books that you write? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the one that's about to come out, I think that if any of my students read it, they'll they'll roll their eyes. 
Um, the play Macbeth may show up a few times in the next book. And I read that every single year with my students and I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it definitely shows up. One of my beta readers put a comment in about how much she loved my literary illusions uh, in the book. So I, the curriculum is definitely... <laughs> it just slips in. I find that in my writing as well, that I'm very influenced by the books that I've taught over and over and over again for 16 years. Like they're just ingrained in me and they come out. <laughs> mm-hmm. They do. Uh, Absolutely do. And uh, and you hope that it, you know, these illusions are things that people are going to catch. Mm-hmm. I try not to put obscure illusions in, in the books because I just don't think that that will, in, you know, help the reader out in any way, shape or form. But things, you know, Shakespeare, especially yeah. the baby plays, that sort of thing, you know, that, that shows that shows up in there. It's all good. I think. Yeah. Things that are kind of in the standard common canon. Yes. Yeah. Things you might have been forced to read in high school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> See, they are useful. Yeah. What is your favorite part of the writing process? My favorite part, I think, is is the planning, is the coming up with the like the new plot, the new characters, the brainstorming. I mean, it's it just it's it feels like it's such the and this is before you really get into the drafting part. But when you're really just trying to come up with, you know, all the all the characters and exactly what's going to happen and how all the pieces are going to fit together. I think that's my favorite part because it's, it's a puzzle and it's just such a creative time. The whole process is creative, but that is sort of like your big bang moment, you know, when you're first Mm -hmm. starting and that's always really exciting. So I think that's my favorite. And my second favorite is probably the editing at the end. I like going Ah, back to the refining. You like the start and the finish. (laughs) Yes, I do. The middle part is, you know, the blood, sweat and tears. Yeah, that's true. I know at the beginning, it's kind of like you haven't hit any snags yet. Everything is fresh and new and clean and there aren't any issues. And at the end, hopefully you've worked out most of those snarls and you're just doing the polishing and it's very satisfying, gratifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. (laughs) What are your least favorite parts? I mean, obviously we've mentioned the middle, but do you have a specific part of the writing process that you dread or that you just really don't enjoy? Um, I think the very end when I'm trying to get it ready for a publication and I'm trying to make sure that everything matches the Chicago manual of style and I don't miss anything. That is the, uh, that's the part that is, I think the most stressful because, you know, I'll be, I will be double and triple and quadruple checking grammar, spelling, punctuation rules that I already know, but it's the time that is full of self-doubt and second guessing. And I don't like that part, but it is, it's really important, but it is the most stressful part. Well, that, and I feel like at a certain point when you're that close to the end, you're really eager to have it out there. So Mm -hmm. there's this temptation to just be like, I have read this thing 78 times already. 12 beta readers have read it twice all, you know, and it's so tedious Mm -hmm. to go back through it again when you really just want to put it out there. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You get really impatient and, you know, it's like you're so close to Disney World, but you're not quite there yet. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So writing a novel is really hard. Like I was talking to some people in the Nat MFA with me recently. And I mean, I think it's the hardest project I've ever taken on for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So what compels you to do it? I'm insane. I'm not really sure. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) Would any sane person choose to do this? I don't know. No, I, I. I think it's, I just, I just enjoy it so much. You have to enjoy it. If you're going to do this, if you're going to spend this many hours on something, then you have to find some, you have to take some pleasure in it, I think. Um, Otherwise, I think you, then you are insane. Like if you really hate every minute of it, then there's probably something wrong there, but, um, and you're still doing it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I just, I don't know. I love, um, I love that moment when the characters sort of get away from you they kind of take over and you're it's it's that you know you're in the what's the word for it the flow in the flow that's Mm -hmm. it yeah (laughs) and and they and then they surprise you and they do things you didn't plan but yet it feels completely organic and like it's supposed to happen because Mm -hmm. 
now they're just acting and doing what they're supposed to do. You know, it's like your little artificial intelligence creations have come alive and are, you know, living their lives and you're just recording what's happening. And I love that moment so much. I just love it when that happens. So, um, you know, I'm always hoping that that's going to happen again. And I guess, because I really like that part. And um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, writing a book is incredibly hard, but I will say that I think now that I've written three, it's not as hard as it was in the beginning, which makes me happy. <laughs> it's gotten a little easier, uh, but it does depend on the book, I think. But, um, you know, but I mean, the first one took me 20 years. So I don't think, I think anything's going to be easy after that. So um, yeah, we only get so many batches of 20 years. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. you're, you know, in the in the grave. Right, but, right. Yeah, can't do that anymore. Can't spend 20 years on one book anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're past that. Um, so yeah, I think I just, I just enjoy that. I enjoy the process so much. I just have to do it. Well, I think what you're speaking to, uh, too, is this, that so much of writing is really unconscious. Um, I kind of think when you hit that flow and when you hit those moments in your writing, where it feels like the characters have just taken on a life of their own and they're just doing what they need to do. And you're just the conduit. Um, that's the unconscious part. I mean, that's what your brain was working on when you were doing the dishes, when you were taking your shower, uh, when you thought you were writing chapter eight, somewhere in your quiet mind, you were writing chapter 18. And here it is, it's been waiting this whole time. Yeah. It's interesting that you learn to trust your brain. Mm -hmm. You learn to trust that your brain's going to figure it out and that I can walk away. It's fine. I'm going to go take that shower. It yeah. always happens in the shower. I don't know why. But There's something it's magical about the shower. <laughs> it's true. I don't know what it is, but it's something magic happens in that in that shower but um yeah you just but you learn to trust that it's going to be figured out like I don't if I hit a, some sort of a wall I don't get frustrated at all because now I realize like I'm working on it all the time in mm -hmm. the bathroom and it's so cool that your brain can do that I know it's so amazing I mean it's what an amazing thing this brain is it's so cool and so you learn to trust it and that's kind of magic too. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, the end too, like you talked earlier about how you got your draft back from your beta readers and it's really interesting to see what different readers take away from it and what different readers notice. And I, it's always fascinating to me too, if I'm doing a workshop or something to get the insights back from the other readers or the other writers, because you realize, you know, they'll pick up on some theme that you didn't even consciously put in there, but it's totally there or some motif or some metaphor, um, or even sometimes something as simple and straightforward as a plot point, I'll be like, I put that in there? I mean, I guess I did, because I'm the only one writing this thing, but I don't remember doing it. Um, and it's pretty fascinating. It absolutely is. And that's, uh, that's one of the great things about discussing your work with other people, is that they will make you see it so differently mm -hmm. through different eyes. I was at a book club last fall, and they had read Sweet Scent and they picked up on something like that I had never eat. I hadn't really even thought about regarding one of the supporting characters mm. and they kind of blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Well, look at that. I wish I could take full credit for that. But <laughs> a happy accident, but right. my cool. name's on the front cover, but I didn't even know that was there. <laughs> wrote those words. So right. <laughs> yeah, I have this, you know, I have a book that's hopefully coming out hopefully by spring of 2023. And yeah, I know I'm so excited. And I have these like daydreams about, you know, being in your, on your side of the podcast and being asked questions or being in the author seat of the book club or whatever. But then I also have these moments where I'm like, but they're probably all know more about my book than I'll know about it. And they'll, you know, like I have this moment where I feel like I'm just going to have to say to someone, you know what, I'm not really smart enough to have written this book. I don't know how this book happened, but like, <laughs> So sorry, I have no answers for you. <laughs> I wouldn't worry too much about that because I think books, I mean, yes, you can sort of forget sometimes that something was in the manuscript. Like that does happen, especially yeah. when, like I like to put a book away for a while and then bring it back out. And then I'll be like, oh, I forgot. I totally forgot. It. <laughs> you know, but by the time it finally comes out, I feel like you're going to know it so intimately and it's kind of like a child you know you just always recognize your child and um 
And so I wouldn't worry too. So we talked about the magic of the shower and, <laughs> um, and you mentioned that you don't really get frustrated. You've gotten so that you can trust your brain and just step away. But there are tough times when you're writing and revising where you're just kind of slogging through. So mm -hmm. how do you keep writing or revising or whatever the, whatever stage you're in when things do just seem kind of tough? Oh yeah. The writing sprint is my, my absolute best tool because I can do anything for 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. So when I reach a point like, okay, I just came back from almost a month abroad. Yes. Oh my gosh. Your pictures, <laughs> they're still coming on Instagram. Oh, That's I know. I'm more, I have so many more. I mean, I haven't, I haven't even gotten to Downton Abbey yet, but anyway. Oh, 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 that's gonna look forward to that. <laughs> but the, I, you know, I took, you know, I took my iPad with its keyboard and everything, and I was going to write every day, yada, yada. And I wrote nothing for three and a half weeks because I forgot to take into effect into account that I was going to be walking like up to 10 miles a day. Right. So my whole thing is get up early in the morning and write. Well, when I've walked 10 miles, all I want to do is sleep. So it never worked out because I was always exhausted from all the great walking we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, so that, so it's been, I came home and I sort of had to get the business back in track. And then right. I, then I was dealing with all of the beta, the beta readers comments and doing like edits and stuff like that. And it was really hard to get back into the flow. And that's what I do whenever it's hard. I just say, do it for 25 minutes. Yeah. The timer and force myself to do it. And usually by the end of that 25 minutes, I'm back and I'm, you know, and if I, maybe if it's a particularly bad day, maybe I'll just do 125, but usually I can do a second one. And then a lot of times I could do a third one and then I can, you know, it just, just make yourself do it for a short amount of time and you can come, it, it just gets you back into the zone. It just take it in little chunks and little baby steps. And that really helps me a lot. Like I, I think in the very beginning when I, my writing partner had talked to me about writing sprints and she was saying 25 minutes, like, what can you get done in 25? <laughs> well, you can get a lot done in 25 minutes and you can at least get back into something, you know, in 25 minutes. So that's my, that's what I, I go to when things get tough. Yeah, that's really good advice that uh, baby steps, mm -hmm. baby steps. Yeah. So you're a teacher and we're recording this interview mid-August and uh, yeah. I'm also a teacher and, you know, we're all familiar with that joke that August is the Sunday of the summer, Sunday <laughs> night of the summer. So um, what are you looking forward to about the school year starting up again? I am looking forward to more normalcy this school year. I'm, you know, we are at my school, we are going back to our schedule from pre-pandemic days. Our lunch schedule is going to be the, the way it used to be. And I'm really looking forward to that because it was a really great schedule that really worked well for everyone. So we are going back to that and I cannot wait uh, to do that. Um, I'm, you know, I just... I think a lot of things are going to kind of go back to the way they were before the pandemic. And I'm, yeah, I cannot wait. It's, it's, it's past time for that to happen, I think. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and just sort of normal school finally coming back, you know, this summer I was fortunate enough to visit Arbroath Abbey in Scotland, where the declaration of Arbroath was signed and it's kind of a forerunner to the declaration of independence. And so I'm going to use that document in my AP class this year. And I'm very excited oh. to do that. I'm excited to get back with my co with my coworkers. I work with great people and I, I, I love the team. And so I can't wait to see them. So really looking forward to that. But most of all, I'm looking forward to sort of the return, a return to normalcy would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> so during the school year for me, it's really challenging to find time to read for pleasure mm -hmm. and to write. So how do you manage to continue your business and your writing in the face of back to school? That has taken a bunch of trial and error to figure out. But basically, I write in the morning. It's the first thing that I do. So I try to get up pretty early. I try to get up at like five, have a cup of coffee, wake up, start writing at 530 and write until about seven or 7.30 in the morning if I can. Usually it's about seven. So I usually get about an hour and a half in. But I try to do that consistently every single day. I've got uh, friends 
writer friends who were also writing at that time. So we'll check in with each other for accountability. Yeah. I've got a mentor who, who opens a chat room every morning at the crack of dawn for writers wow. to come join so that they've got this like accountability in this routine. So sometimes I'll join her chat room. And, and so that helps a lot. And then where the business tasks are concerned, I had to come up with a, like a method that would keep me from going absolutely insane because there's yes. always more that you can do. I mean, there's yes. always more. Um, That's true with teaching too. There's yes. always more that you can do. So what I did eventually is I, I divided up the, the tasks of the business um, according to days of the week. So I have a schedule that I follow. Like I do certain tasks on Monday, you know, I think Monday is my tracking of sales. I track all the sales on Monday. I try not to let myself track sales the rest of the week. Otherwise, I'm sure that's hard. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. But if you can manage to just do it once a week, then it feels really good when you see those, you know, if you have a day where maybe you don't sell a book or something, then you feel bad. But over the course of a week, you get to the next right. week, you feel better. So like that's once a week I do like you know, track all my expenses one day, all my money in another day. I do advertising on one day. I do newsletter on one day. So, you know, it's just, I've just got one aspect of the business going every single day. And then I've tried with social media stuff because that's really important. I'm trying to schedule that stuff some of it way out in advance. You use like Hootsuite or something like that, or I, I use, um, I use the meta business suite. Mm -hmm. So I just really, I just really use uh, Facebook and, and Instagram more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have the, the ability, they have a calendar and you can put, you can schedule posts from here to kingdom come. So yeah. it's really great. So try to do that. And, but just taking, you know, not trying to do too much every single day because you can, like there was a time when I, when I first got started in in 2021, I kind of hit the wall and I burnt out a bit um, just because I was getting up four o'clock in the morning yeah. and work all morning, go to school, work all day, come home and work all night long. Yeah. And uh, it's just not sustainable. No. So you have to, while there are a million things you want to do, promotions and social media stuff. And maybe you want to also have a YouTube channel and you want to, you know, you want to do everything, but physically, like if you've got a, if, especially if you've got a, a, a day job, you just, right. you have to pick and choose, you know, otherwise you can burn out and then you, then you're not doing anything. And so, right. yeah. So just pace yourself and it's good to be kind to yourself, I think. <laughs> yeah. Giving yourself some grace is definitely important. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about your books. Where can people find them? The print books you can find online pretty much anywhere. So whatever, like if you you if you like to buy your books from Barnes and Noble, the print books are at Barnes and Noble. I mean, they're pretty much every major bookstore chain in the English speaking world has them. Um, but it's they're available online. They're not available in stores. Um, they're only a it's only a couple stores in the Richmond area that have carried them. And I think only one of them has copies at the moment, which is Book Speeds and More. But the others are, um, you know, the books are available, um, you know, online from any of those like book retailers. And right now the eBooks are only available uh, for Kindle at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm doing a trial run with Kindle Unlimited to see how that goes. Mm -hmm. So I was wide uh, with the eBook until just about a month ago. Um, so for two years, I'd been wide with the ebook. And uh, so now I'm giving this a try and see what it's, you know, got to experiment with different things. So yeah. it, that's where the ebook is available from Amazon. Do you see yourself breaking into audiobooks at any point? Oh, yes. I would have done it by now already if I, if I, uh, if it wasn't so expensive, mm -hmm. <laughs> to be honest, it's really expensive to do it well. Um, but I definitely want to. That was always part of the plan, you know, I've, but it also, it takes, you've got to, um, to put some, have some serious time to put towards it as well. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. It's a big, it's a big project. So it's, it's about time and money, but hopefully in the not too distant future, the audiobook will be out as well. Very exciting. Cool. Yeah. Do you, uh, besides in the classroom, have any upcoming events or appearances scheduled? So the third book, Cruising Toward Death is going to come out by the end of this month. It got a little bit delayed. Um, it's my still August. That's okay. It is. It is but my wonderful cover designer just had a baby and mm -hmm. baby early. 
So oh, wow. Okay. So it, it changed the schedule of things a little bit. And wow. so I didn't want to schedule anything until I, everything was sort of completely and utterly nailed down. Right. So at the moment, I don't have any events um, scheduled, um, but we will see. I'm, I will probably do a signing this fall, but I'm not sure exactly when or where. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of cruising toward death, we're coming to the end of our time together. And I would love to end with an excerpt on the book that's about to come out. Okay. All right. Well, I have one that I've chosen right here. In this book, um, in Cruising Toward Death, so Jill is trying to take her career to the next level. And so she is just, she's trying to hook a cruise line as a client. So her, comp- her company's been primarily beauty um, PR focused, but now she's hoping to score a vice presidency by hooking a, a cruise line. Okay. So she's on this cruise line. Um, she's on the maiden voyage of the Lady Luck is the name of the cruise ship. And she's supposed to be doing research and then she's supposed to pitch the business to the owner of the cruise line while on this cruise. So she's just recently, it's the first night of the cruise. She's at dinner. She's just had a really bad incident where um she caused a waiter to to drop an entire tray of flaming baked alaskas so dinner's not going very well (laughs) (laughs) to say the least yes (laughs) so um here we go no one at our table mentioned the baked alaska incident so they either hadn't seen it or they were very polite my money was on good manners I made a supreme effort not to embarrass myself further and to make interesting conversation to make up for my earlier faux pas I was succeeding too. Not going to lie, I played the Mr. Snicklefritz card. I currently had a small role on that famous children's television show, a thank you from the producers for solving the murder of a puppeteer. When people find out you've worked on an iconic television show, your cool quotient, quotient goes way up and they have lots of questions. I wasn't planning to mention it to anyone, but then I tried to burn down the ship with flaming desserts. Desperate times. Still, I avoided baked Alaska for my own dessert, opting instead for the very safe vanilla bean creme brulee. It was delectable and very much not on fire. All social equilibrium was restored by the time the after-dinner coffee arrived. John Gowdy and I were listening to Novette tell us about a nightmare ship she once worked on when a flash of red scooter caught my eye. Kazimir Kablinski was on the move, but he didn't get very far before he crashed into a table. He corrected, hit the gas too hard, and crashed into the back of someone's chair. He corrected again and nearly ran over a waiter. This progression continued across the dining room until patrons had had enough and became vocal. Why don't you watch where you're going? Don't you need a license for that thing? Go back to your table. I'm going for a smoke. Lighten up, yelled Kaz as he brandished a cigar in one hand and attempted to steer with the other. I think someone's had too much to drink, murmured John. I looked to the captain. Would she step in? Her face was grim, but she made no move. I wondered if she'd been instructed by the company to keep Kablinski happy at all costs. After a painful interlude, Kaz finally made it to the sliding glass door that opened onto the promenade that encircled the ship. The room breathed a collective sigh of relief as his scooter disappeared into the night. That's when I decided to make friends with Kazimir Kablinski. In a matter of hours, he had shown himself to be a PR nightmare, and if no one was going to call him out on his bad behavior, behavior that could easily be captured by a cruising YouTuber, I needed to find another way to curb his outrageous ways. If I had to extend the hand of friendship to coax him to join Team Swiss, to coax him to join Team C-Swept, so be it. Calmly, I gathered my purse and told my dinner companions that I would be back in a moment. Then I headed across the dining room toward the sliding glass door. Before I had taken ten steps, Mr. Newlywed rose from his chair, buttoned the top button of his suit jacket, said something to his bride, and began to walk toward the same door Kaz had exited. And he didn't limp. Mike had been shot in the line of duty. A little backstory. She is the reason why she has dumped all of this creme brulee is that she's seen this guy and he's in, he's like at the newlywed table in the dining room and she he resembles her ex-boyfriend. Uh, so she has like a freak out. Mm-hmm. But it's not her ex-boyfriend. She's just has ex-boyfriend PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't limp. Mike had been shot in the line of duty during a standoff with a gangster who was trying to extort money from a bar in his neighborhood. The bullet had torn through his thigh, doing all sorts of damage, leaving him with a slight limp. 
Recovery had taken a long time, and that long road, coupled with the censure he received from the police department for an unauthorized sting operation, had convinced Mike to leave policing behind and to pursue his other love, journalism. Mr. Newlywed didn't limp, and now I could also see that he was thicker around the middle. More proof not only that he wasn't Mike, but also that I needed to get over my (laughs) ex-boyfriend. Soon I was at the door. I hesitated for a split second, took a deep breath, and stepped outside. The first thing I noticed was the frigid air, which stung my face and caused me to gasp. Secondly, I saw the moon. It was large and not quite full, but it lit the scene clearly. A tall, thin man, a crew member on break from the look of his clothing, was standing at the rail, his back to me, smoking a cigar. To my left, the dining room's wall of glass continued for about 15 feet until it was interrupted by a steel bulkhead that protruded outward. A metal cigarette receptacle was attached to this wall, and that's where I found Mr. Newlywed smoking a cigarette and chatting amiably with Kaz Kablinski, who was puffing away on his stogie. Dang, I hadn't expected to find Kaz engaged in conversation. Deploying my southern charm would be difficult if I had to butt my way in, and I took a moment to strategize. Should I emphasize his role as an investor or play on his sympathy for, what do you need, doll? Who you looking for? Kaz's harsh voice broke my train of thought and I quickly regrouped. Mr. Koblinski, I wanted to introduce my... I heard the click of a stapler, followed almost immediately by a sharp ping as something struck the wall near Kaz. Get down, someone yelled. It might have been me. Mr. Newlywed and I hit the deck while the man on a smoke break fled down the promenade. Kaz, trapped by his scooter, slumped over it, trying to make himself as small as possible. I waited for another. What exactly was I waiting for? When nothing else happened, I raised my head. What just happened? Gunshot, said the terse groom as he climbed to his feet. I slowly followed, my ears pricked in listening for another staple gun sound. If so, it's silenced, I said. Casimir, said Mr. Newlywed, but Kaz wasn't moving. He remained slumped over his scooter. I rushed to him and felt for a pulse. It was faint and sporadic. I put my hand in front of his mouth. He wasn't breathing. I looked for blood, but I couldn't find any. I think he had a heart attack. Go get help, I cried, and Mr. Newlywed took off running. Thankfully, my Girl Scout training kicked in, and soon I had lowered Casimir Koblinski to the deck and was administering mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Yes, you should pity me because it was gross, but a man's life was on the line, so let's all get some perspective. Paramedics arrived shortly and took over, thank heaven, because administering the kiss of life to Mr. Cigar Mouth was one of my least favorite experiences ever right up there with cleaning fish and bathing a dog with diarrhea. Once the professionals took over, I was free to notice the crowd that had gathered and had watched me try to revive Kaz. His daughter was there, supported by fellow passengers as she looked on in horror. John and Yvette were also there, and I stumbled toward them. Vodka, I cried. (laughs) Will whiskey do? asked Yvette as she pulled a small flask from her evening bag. The woman was prepared for every eventuality. I took a large swig from the flask, swished it around my mouth, gargled and spit it over the side and into the ocean. Thank you, I coughed as I handed the flask back to its owner. Kaz enjoys a good Cuban. Enjoyed, said John, and he nodded toward Kaz, whom the paramedics had now covered with a blanket from head to toe. Kazimir Kaz Kablinski, the mattress king of Piscataway, New Jersey, was pronounced dead of cardiac arrest at 9.47 p.m. The party started at 9.48. Wow, thank you. That was a good little trailer for the upcoming novel. (laughs) Thanks. Now, this is your third in the series. Do you already have ideas for upcoming books in the series? Yes, I'm already in the midst of planning the fourth one. In this okay. so that one's uh, that one um, has a title. My cover designer is working on that cover already. So it's definitely it's a it's a done deal. It's going to happen. And um, I tentatively have the tentatively have the fifth. OK, the wow. Mind. Yeah. It's amazing how many ideas you have. I have, you know, two manuscripts, one that has a book contract and one that I'm revising. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I don't know if it's just because I'm so involved with those two right now, maybe, or if it's just because I'm dry after two novels. Um, But I, you know, someone asked me recently if I'd be taking another novel writing class. And I was like, well, I, you know, have to have another idea first. (laughs) I can't just, I don't have an idea right now. So no, not right now. Well, I mean, you're, you're revising one right now. So you, your attention's really on it. Yes. Hard to, it's hard to have other ideas when you, when you're really focused on, especially on a revision. And yes. And, and revision in this case is a very generous term. I think rewriting might be (laughs) slightly more accurate. (laughs) Yeah. Cut yourself some slack. The other ideas will come, you know, they will. They will. They will. The first did, so. 
Well, congratulations on your, by the time this drops, your book will be out and people will be able to go find it. And uh, maybe you'll have some events this fall where people will be able to come get their book signed or hear you read or shake your hand. <laughs> that would be great. I hope so. I hope to. Yeah. One step at a time, but yeah, there should be, there will definitely be something this fall, but I'm just not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again for spending some time with us this afternoon and I'm looking forward to this third book. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of If She Can Do It, So Can You. If you like what you heard, please consider making a donation to support our podcast at buymeacoffee.com backslash if she can do it. That's buymeacoffee.com backslash I-F-S-H-E-C-A-N-D-O-I-T-S. Your donation supports the uplifting and empowering content that we produce. If you know an amazing woman who you think we should feature on a future episode of If She Can Do It, So Can You, please shoot me an email at ifshecandoitsocanyou at gmail.com. I also invite you to check out our website, ifshecandoitsocanyou.wordpress.com and pay us a visit on Instagram at ifshecandoitsocanyou. Big thanks goes out to Brad Fire of Rad Fire Productions for editing this podcast. It would absolutely not be possible without his editing expertise. Another big thanks goes out to Ashley Unger, who produces all the artwork for this podcast. I look forward to seeing you on our next episode on the first of next month. And remember, if she can do it, so can you. <laughs>